Hello and welcome to the Price of Football podcast, the podcast that follows the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and him, Kieran Maguire. Kieran, uh, forgive me for doing this, but uh, I need to let people into a little industry secret. And the, the pod that went out on Monday was actually recorded before the Palace-Brighton game, or as we call it, El Gatwico. Uh, and of course, it was a big win in El Gatwico for, for my team against your team. Big and deserved, I feel, uh, we should say. So I'm allowing you the the option to be grown up and big about this and just acknowledge that the better team won and then we'll move on. Congratulations on your victory. Thank you very much. I wish I could describe the look on his face to you at home, listeners, but <laughs> one day we'll film this podcast and people will see what our relationship really is like because they can't, they simply can't see the body language, can they? Um, it's a Thursday, so it's our, it's, our, it's our sort of in-depth look at the big issues today. Uh, and coming up, Kieran, there'll be more mentions of El Gatwicka, I imagine they'll be crowbarred in somehow. In fact, even when we're doing the Scottish special in a couple of weeks' time, I'll still be crowbarring him. Uh, today, we, we take a look at the numbers behind one of the Premier League giants, Arsenal, and find out why they slid from being the second richest club to the bottom of the top six. Uh, plus the protest against Hoffenheim's owner, which is causing chaos in Germany. Liverpool are creeping up on Man United. West Brom fans are unhappy. And Kieran has poked the Aston Villa... <laughs> Hornet's Nest. I know the Hornet's Nest should be at Watford, but Kieran managed to poke it at Villa yesterday. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. Now, Arsenal, this is a big story. Bottom of the top six sounds more dramatic than sixth, mm. isn't it? But it's it's still not good news for Arsenal. So tell me about the, their figures and, and about their slow decline financially. Well, uh, Arsenal have gone from making uh, a steady profit. Yeah, they, they were sort of the Bank of England club for, for so long. Mm. Uh, but uh, last year, they, they just posted losses of, of £27 million compared to a £60 million profit the previous year. Uh, now, part of the reason for that is that they're not on they're not in the Champions League on a regular basis. Mm. Uh, and that means that uh, their commercial partners, their commercial sponsors aren't happy. Either they're not going to be renewing or if they are renewing, it's at lower prices or they'll be putting in penalty clauses. The other thing that they've they failed to do in 2019 was that they didn't really sell any players in, in 2018. They they did invest in the squad, mm. but they also sold Walcott and Giroud and Sanchez and Oclay Chamberlain, and that brought in 120 million quid. Um, if, if you keep selling your family silver, you, you run out of family silver. Um, so they didn't have very much to spend, uh, or they didn't have many that amount of money coming in. Um, I think there are some concerns uh, that their match day income is now lower than it was in 2013. Uh, and given that Arsenal... When was the move to the Emirates? Well, it was 15, 20 years ago. Well, so, yeah, they've, well, they've been okay, there. For, well, okay. um, but what they've been able to do is that with regular or sort of practically guaranteed Champions League football, mm. they've been able to go to the Prawn Sandwich Brigade and say, well, if you want a box, you're going to have to go and pay top dollar. If you're now playing Albanian's third best team on a Thursday night, that's less appealing. Um, and therefore, they, they've had to go and cut their prices accordingly. But still, the Premier League is still going to be the biggest slice of their match day revenue, and that hasn't fallen off, surely, has it? it it's it's down it's down a wee bit, uh, but not not significantly. Um, what I think what they've struggled to do is is to put up prices. They still have the second highest uh, level of match day income of any club in in the UK. Um, they're second only to Manchester United, but oh, their their commercial income is down, and and the lack of uh, Champions League participation is bad for broadcasting. Uh, well, that match day income, you've answered my question because that's. We've been doing this long enough now. I don't think I even need to ask you the question. I just look at you and you know the answer. So I, I, I did wonder whether the London Stadium, West Ham's new stadium, was bad 
news for Arsenal in that any floating tourists might find it easier to get a ticket at West Ham than they would at Arsenal. Well, that's clearly not the case. No, I mean, certainly as somebody that, that's been as an away fan to both the London Stadium and the Emirates, you, you see far more tourists there. And um, Part of that is due to the fact, if you look at the West Ham model, they've got 60,000 people capacity, but they've sold 54,000 season tickets, whereas at Arsenal, they, there's far more tickets left available on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, and, and the reason for that is with the best will in the world. You know, I, I like West Ham as, as, a, as a club you know, in terms of its historical place in East End society. Is, um, is there a club you don't like? I, I like everybody. Every week, Chelmsford City, West Ham, there's barely a club. you. This is the opposite of what any football... I'm just writing a book about how you should dislike every other football club except the one you support. And here you are just casually throwing out the fact you like West Ham. Uncle Terry was a Millwall face. Well, my Uncle Tony sported West Ham. So oh, OK. The first right. match I ever went to in 1971 was West Ham versus Arsenal with my Uncle Tony sat on his shoulders and that was it. You know, that, that's how I fell in, fell in love with football. Well, in, in which case, what, you, if you're in love with football, why do you support Brighton? It's like local club, that's what you'd always do. I wish I could put the small b. Every time I write Brighton, I do it with a small b. I can't do that in my voice. Um, so that defeat to Olympiacos the other night, then, an exciting game as it was, that's costly for them. So, it's, so Europe not being in the Champions League is a big problem. There's a chance they might not be in the Europa League this season. So how much will that cost them? Well, I think you're probably... Last year, they made around about £35 million from prize money. Um, so, so the way that UEFA divvy it up. And on top of that, you've then got seven home fixtures um, in the Europa League. Now, once again, they can't charge top dollar prices until you really get to the quarterfinals. Um, but it, but you, you're probably looking at around about £2 million a match. So you put that all together, you know, take £50 million off anybody's budget, um, and, and they're going to struggle a wee bit. I know I introduced this in terms of them being in the top six because you always assume they're one of the traditional top six. That doesn't make it any worse. I mean, if you were talking about Sheffield United having a decline from one year in the Premier League to the next, that would be just as bad. Why is it more significant that this is happening to a club the size of Arsenal? Is it just because it's a club the size of Arsenal? I think so. If you look at the history of the Premier League, you go back to initially it was a battle between Manchester United and Arsenal to win the Premier League each year until Abramovich came in with his riches and then Mansour came in with UAE riches on top of that to make it more competitive. To see a club which has historically been uh, one of the top dogs now in decline. You know, if, if they finish top half of the season, uh, top half of the Premier League, then they seem to be pretty happy with that. For many years, Arsene Wenger was castigated because the Arsenal model was to finish fourth or third. Yeah. Um, and therefore, they, kn- they knew how to make their money on the back of that. Uh, I-, I think some Arsenal fans would perhaps like to revert back to that. Well, we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute because it, it, a lot of us said that at the time, be careful what you wish for. As, well, the same with Brighton and Chris Hewton, essentially. Potter balls all very well, but let's see, it gets you relegated. But into this decline, sorry, that was a, that was a real crowbar. That was that was definitely a crowbar. El Gatwicker, wasn't it? You're not really not responding, are you? Okay, <laughs> we'll just find another club that you like then, and we'll have we'll have a go at them. Is is this decline terminal? How do they how do they arrest it? I mean, if they're not in Europe this season and they're not in Europe next season, do they just have to accept that they might become another club? 
I, I think there's is, is a real uh, danger of that uh, because ultimately your success on the pitch is normally uh, linked very closely to uh, recruitment and wages. Mm. Now, Arsenal's wage bill has fallen now to £100 million below that of Manchester City, Liverpool and Manchester United. £100 million pounds yeah. below? Uh, Arsenal have... You know, they, they were competitive wage-wise. They were never at the top. But uh, the, the lack of Champions League participation meant that the wage bill fell last year because oh. they weren't paying the bonuses out for that, which oh. causes problems in terms of recruitment. So, so does that... Forgive again my ignorance, but this is why you're the on the expert side of the, the table and I'm on the novice side of the table. Well, I'm learning. Does, does that lower wage bill reflect... The slightly because they're not they're still getting good players, isn't it? people like Obama Yang and Lacazette are very good players. But does that reflect it, that they're not fishing in the same pool that they were five six years ago? They can't compete with United and City and Liverpool now for that quality of player, or is it just because they're having to cut the? I, I think they have to be a little bit careful because of uh, the, 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 the ever looming spectre of financial fair play. Um, you know that does restrict how how your ambitions to a certain extent. Uh, yes, they have been recruiting good players. Um, but those players are not enough to form a good squad. So I think you're absolutely right. You point, you've, you've singled out some excellent individuals, mm. but you need more than that to be successful. If you look at the Liverpool team, can you see a weak, a weak link there? If you look at the City team, you look at the City bench, can you see a weak link there? You look at Arsenal, yeah. um, and they've still got David Luiz at centre-half, which which gives hope for every park footballer in the country. Well, that's a, that's a very fair point, but there are Arsenal fans who will tell you that that was always the case even when they had money, that recruitment wasn't always the cleverest part of their their job um, Arsene Wenger who you mentioned he, he always said very rarely in a complaining sort of way that his transfer budget was, was curtailed because of the cost of, of the Emirates is that still the case? Are they still paying for the stadium? No, no, they, they, they do have some outstanding loans, but they're very, very manageable. Um, the money that they've made on the, on the property side of the business is, is, is effectively generating enough to cover any outstanding loan interest. Sorry, what money they've made on the property side? From well, selling because, Highbury? Because sell, selling Highbury, converting it into... So Arsenal Holdings have two companies. They've got the football club and then they've got a little property company. Now, in, in 2018, the property company did very well. In 2019, it generated less money. Um, Why is it... Sorry, Kieran. Why is it still? It, they can only sell Highbury once, can't they? How, why, how does a property company still work at Arsenal then? Well, because they they actually own some of the properties and they're getting rental income. From oh, some I of see, them as well. oh, okay, right. Sorry, that's, I did, Yeah, that's so. That, so, that, whilst they. They they no longer physically owned the ground in in the sense of it being a football stadium. That they, they had actually had the the wherewithal to um, use it to generate money from from the properties that were built there. It, to finish this, and it, this is a harder question to ask and answer, I suppose. If if Arsenal were still the mega rich Arsenal three or four seasons ago, would they have gone for a manager like Arteta? Is is that a financial constraint involved? In a, it, a good player and a potentially good coach, but still completely untried. And you've seen the likes of Ancelotti going to Everton, whereas four or five years ago, that would be the manager you'd expect Arsenal to be getting, and their fans would be demanding in a way. Uh, I, th- I think financial considerations uh, 
own element to it. And what we are seeing is that uh, Stan Kroenke, the owner, uh, he appears to be delegating some responsibility at Arsenal now to his son, who by all accounts is soccer mad, um, as as they like to say. Um, And therefore, perhaps it's uh, the advice he's taken that he wants a younger manager. Uh, Barcelona took a gamble with with Guardiola. So sometimes it can work. And I think... Part of the reason why Arteta will have got the job is that they will have taken the view that um, he will have served an apprenticeship under Pep. Uh, he will have learnt uh, from from the master himself. Um, and anybody that's read any of the books about the the, the Guardiola coaching methods, uh, you know, clearly it's very intense. Uh, Arteta is an intensive individual himself, so they're hoping that some of that will, will rub off. It, it's a gamble, as all of these things are. So it turned out, and maybe we should be tugging a forelock in the direction of Arsene Wenger because for all the talk of lack of ambition etc etc in fact that Wenger was doing a very good job in more difficult circumstances than perhaps we realised Yes, I mean Arsenal never had the biggest budget Um, it's a terrible thing to say because we are ultimately football romantics at heart Mm. But money does well, you count. Are. You love every club, so you're the most romantic man in the world, as we've discovered. Um, to the extent of being a harlot, I think, personally. But there you are. <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> I know you have. You've told me. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, in terms of uh, Wenger... Wenger, Wenger's efforts, I think, were underappreciated because, um, as fans, we, we set ourselves uh, ambitions which perhaps are, are not matched with... Uh, a review of the hard, cold facts, and nobody wants to be looking at the numbers. You know, yeah, and, well, and, and, I'm going to say Arsenal TV here, basically. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's a very successful enterprise. Yeah. But it, it's been successful by going down the the, the shock jock approach, yeah. uh, and you can see the benefits to that. Uh, in term, it's it's weaponized fans who think that in order to get their voice heard, they've got to say something which is controversial. All right, we're going to be talking about the northwest of England in a moment, but I want to go there via Germany, which is how EasyJet do it, basically. Um, well, not fly B. Not fly. Oh dear, oh Lord, maybe you should do an aviation podcast. Um, we we were asked a question about the German model a few weeks ago, uh, and we discussed it. And as romantic football fans, then we in general approve the German model. But it's become big news this week with with chaos. With with you know, we saw players basically pleading with fans to to take down huge banners at Bayern Munich and at Union Berlin, it's mainly directed against Hoffenheim. So just for those of you, those of us who didn't, I did, of course I heard it. I was on it. I didn't listen to it afterwards. But for those people listening to this. Who, who maybe didn't hear the one about the German football could you explain briefly what these protests these vehement protests have been about this weekend in Germany okay um in, in German football um, no one individual is allowed to own more than 50 percent of a club under normal circumstances now are these rules that were set up when the, the Bundesliga was first set up or is this custom and practice no this this is going back in terms of German football history it was sort of set up by a romantic middle class who who sort of yeah we took going back a century now. Oh, as far um, back as that? Oh, for, oh yeah. okay. Yeah, right, so okay, it is very much historical that um, the, the fans, because of the way that uh, that uh, football is so embedded in German culture, is that the fans almost was always the view that they should control the club. Um, and um, and that's being kept up. And certainly the ultra movement in Germany has been very keen to keep those principles. However, there is there is a workaround that if somebody can prove that they've had support of a club, say from a financial perspective, for at least 20 years, then they can acquire more than 50%. So we've seen this with Volkswagen, for example, um, 
uh, RB Leipzig use a very uh, a very silver-tongued way of getting around that. And then we've got the issue of Hoffenheim. Now, Hoffenheim were effectively a fifth or a sixth division club in Germany, but they, they had a, a fan called Dietmar Hopp, and uh, Hopp uh, is is one of the guys that set up a company called SAP, which is a, a is a global software company. It does all mm, the mm. does all the crap that we're not interested in. Um, and Accounts- therefore, it does accountancy. It does accountancy, well, well, okay, yeah, okay. But which is which is about <laughs> as much crap as we don't want to get involved with as we can. Um, now, Hopp's worth around about fifteen billion. Right. Uh, okay. So he, he's, he's clearly a very smart guy. Uh, he's a very litigious guy as well. He, he's taken uh, he's taken fans to court. Um, there, there has been accusations that he's had uh, microphones installed uh, to, to monitor conversations about him. And on right. the back of that, uh, yeah, there's been alleg- these allegations that he's then been suing individual fans when they've said disrespectful things to him. Um, and Dortmund fans who are, are very organised, and this is, this is one of the things that we see in, in Germany, that the, the ultra movement, they will, they will spend you know, weeks and months planning a particular protest, whereas we tend to be a bit more spontaneous yeah. uh, about this here in the UK. Um, well, Dortmund fans have been banned from Hoffenheim for three years because of the protests that they've had uh, against, uh, against Hopp. Um, and therefore, the other, the other ultra groups in Germany, as a show of solidarity, have decided to publicise this, and they've they've put Hop into their effectively into their laser beams. Mm. Um, now, what happened with the, with the match with Bayern is that they they showed a banner um, which had Hop in the crosshairs, uh, effectively the crosshairs yeah. of a rifle. Not a very pleasant thing to do. No. Um, I, I've been to Newcastle matches where some of the banners, in respect of Mike Ashley, yeah. that, that that would be that would be that would be mild. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think if you talk to West Ham fans, and we, we were talking a couple of weeks ago yeah, about big West demonstration. Ham's, yeah. Uh, so Hop didn't like this, and after I think it was seventy-three minutes when this was going up, there was an announcement. Um, that could could the banner go down? Yeah. The fans refused to take it down, mm-hmm. and then the referee took the players off the pitch. Um, now, given that there have been uh, outbursts of racism um, in Germany, where referees have not taken uh, yeah, players and, off the pitch, and Italy and etc. Et um, yeah, th- this this really incensed the the German fan base. Uh, the players went off for fifteen minutes. At the time, Bayern was six 0 up, so the match was over. Yeah, from, from in terms of a sporting contest. Um, the the Bayern, some of the senior Bayern management, they went across to their own fans, as did some of the players, to try to plead with them to take this banner down. And the fans said, no, no, we are we are showing solidarity with Dortmund. We are showing solidarity in terms of we don't like the way that Hoffenheim have uh, circumvented the, the fifty plus one rule. I, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that about Bayern Munich because my next question was because you know uh, it. As far as I'm concerned, you can have teams in other countries. So I've got a German team, which is Union Berlin. Um, We had some great times. And I understood why they were demonstrating very passionate left-wing support. So you're saying the Bayern, because I just assumed the Bayern Munich fans was a slight error of hypocrisy. They they just didn't want another wealthy club coming along and challenging them. But you're saying it was the opposite of that. It's actually showing solidarity to other supporters yes very very much so right, okay. uh, i mean if, if you know if you, if you look at uh, munich it's uh, it, it is a very middle class city it, it's uh, it's a conservative city you know, it's sort of angelo merkel's ho- you know, yeah yeah uh, very much their home base so so from that perspective you wouldn't expect it to be that overtly political but the the fan base uh, sort of the ultra element of the fan base tends to be younger tends to be more mobilized and there has been a lot of contact between fans of the different clubs well 
what do those fans want as the outcome then? They they want Hop to be taken out of Hoffenheim and, and Hoffenheim then to be sold to the fans or become a. Yeah, I think in an ideal world they would they they want uh, Hoffenheim to return to its roots in terms of being a fifty plus one club. Now, clearly, if you're a Hoffenheim, but you can't fans, relegate them, though, can you? you, you no. Right. no, and, and you know, perhaps what they want is is. Uh, uh, perhaps Hop himself to show a bit more humility. There has been, uh, you know, some people accuse some people, German people, of being a bit arrogant at times, and um, therefore, uh, perhaps if he hadn't been so litigious, perhaps if he hadn't been so aggressive towards fans from other clubs, uh, and perhaps if he just turned around and says, "Right, let's have a meeting together. I'm going to lift the ban in terms of Dortmund fans being unable to attend matches at my ground," then that's a solution. Uh, there's got to be a big give and take of both sides so that both sides can walk away with a victory. OK, so so far this week you've upset Villa fans, now you've upset the whole of Germany, that's fine. Um, I, I, just, please don't include me in these terrible sweeping generalisations about people here. What, um, UEFA have been noticeable by the silence here, though, um, haven't they? So I, I was kind of hoping UEFA would get involved so we could then accuse them of saying, well, you do nothing about racism, public displays, of, but they've done nothing about this, so... We can't really accuse them of hypocrisy, but they must have a view, I presume, have they? Yeah, but th- this is a domestic issue, right, so therefore so it's, it's a DFB issue. Right, OK. The northwest of England, then. Man United's figures, not particularly good? Well, th- there was a big kerfuffle in the press uh, when Manchester United announced their, their six-month results. Um, because they are uh, Manchester United, I don't know if you're aware of the details, but they're actually there. They are located in the Cayman Islands in terms of being a company. Um, and uh, given that the Cayman Islands, was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, went on a blacklist of countries, effectively do not deal with these right. as far as the EU is concerned. And that, that, uh, that's gone, not going down particularly well. Um, but Manchester United's cash balance has fallen by £200 million in six months. Uh, in which, six months? In six months. Yeah, that's that's a good night out, isn't it? Um, uh, yeah, sorry. Is, is this deliberately? Have they moved money somewhere else? Or no, they... no. Well, then, How the... have they done that in six months? Well, I, I, did, I did some some ferreting around, and the issue that United had was that since Sir Alex retired. Um, They've been buying loads of players with with mixed success in terms of how they've delivered on the pitch, but United's strategy has gone from just just buying the players to trying to be a bit cuter than that, and they've been buying them on credit. So when Sir Alex retired, uh, Manchester United owned owed thirteen million pounds to other clubs for for outstanding instalments on transfer fees. Doesn't seem a lot. No, by the time we got to twenty eighteen. It was two hundred and fifty-eight million. Does seem a lot. That does seem a lot. Yes, <laughs> does, does seem a lot. Um, so uh, I, I think what had happened was that the United board looked at this, and also some of some of the banks who had been lending to United and supporting United looked at this and say, "Look, guys, you, you can't carry on doing this." Um, you, you need to start paying down some of your debts. It's a bit like you know, you, if you, you or I, we go crazy on the credit cards. That's fine. You're having fun for a while, but ultimately that credit card bill is creeping up and up, um, uh, my, and, and my, you, you become a. My credit card was taken away from me four years ago. <laughs> was it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have one. It's very wise. Right. But that's still that's still a lot of money in six months, though, isn't it? That two hundred million. Yes, and uh, so as a result of that, United's other debts, or what we refer to as net debt, has has gone up significantly. So 
you know, it could be argued too that they 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 they're robbing Peter to pay Paul in respect of this. Um, it's it's not stopped them in terms of last summer. Um, remember they, they signed Harry McGuire. They 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 signed uh, Aaron, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, Wan-Bissaka, yeah. Um, yeah. They signed uh, Daniel James, uh, but it was noticeable that some of those deals. Um, I think I think that the Palace's deal with Wan-Bissaka that was that was split into two payments. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas my understanding is that Leicester. Um, turned around to United and said, "If you want Harry Maguire, it's eighty million pounds cash," right. which is another reason why that their cash balance has, has taken such a hit. Okay, well, if that wasn't bad enough news for Man United fans, the figures coming out of Liverpool is probably even worse news for them because they're they're the op- they're going in the, very much the right direction, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think at, at present uh, Liverpool are the operate the smartest kids both on and off the pitch. Really, that's a big um, claim from you. Yeah, well, they. They just seem to have a strategy. Yeah, they, they seem to know what they're going to be doing, not just this year, but in the next three years and five years. It's a, ta- it's a damning indictment that, that implies that most other clubs don't have a strategy. No, no. Uh, uh, they, they go from transfer window to transfer so, window. Oh, OK. Um, Liverpool... Um, so are Liverpool ahead of the timescale for their strategy, do you think? I, I think they are They are absolutely where they intended to be. Um, they Their income now is... I mean, there's... They're still they're still a wee bit behind Manchester United in terms of income. Are they? Um, they they're ninety four million pounds behind now. Ev- in what, every what, in what in what way in, corp- in, in terms of generating revenue? Oh, that's interesting. Because Ma- Manchester United still have the legacy benefits, of course, of course, of yeah. signing all of those deals. Um, in many years ago. So if you think about that, they signed a 10-year uh, kit sponsorship deal with Adidas for £75 million a year. They've got a uh, front-of-shirt sponsorship deal with, with Chevrolet. Chevrolet yeah. That's £56 million. Um, and those deals, are, they're, they're starting to unwind now. Um, what United are finding is their model of going to Indonesia and saying, do you want to be our mobile phone partner? Three million quid. Um, five years ago, when United were running for trophies all the time the the indonesian mobile phone company would turn around and say yeah 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 we'll, we'll snap it up what they're now doing is say well hold on what what was the last thing you won yeah it was yeah. a few years ago um liverpool are also offering us for three million pounds and they've got the champions league they've got the world club championship and they're about to be uh, premier league champions for, for 2020 so why should we go with Manchester United when we could go with Liverpool? And and, and those two clubs are our biggest, I hate, hate to use this phrase, they're our biggest football brands mm. um, in terms of international support. I, I suppose you could argue as well that in, in terms of the identity of the football that Liverpool play as well, that's more of a brand, isn't it? It's, it's, you, you expect more goals, there's more sort of glamour to the outside world involved with Liverpool's football on the pitch than Risen Man United, despite the fact that they're winning things. It's also, if you if you had to choose which one of them you were going to watch, you'd probably go to see Liverpool rather than Man U, wouldn't you? Yes, and that they are they're playing they're playing glamorous football, um, and certainly in terms of their their strategy. Um, my understanding is that there are three clubs in the Premier League which are very much using data and statistical analysis in terms of recruitment and strategy. Now, those three teams are Liverpool, Manchester City and Leicester. And those are the three teams who are presently top of the Premier League. Um, now, you know, whilst people say, well, hold on, you know, you, you, what, what's wrong with a bloke with a flat cap you know, spotting the next Marcus Rashford and so on? Um, the computers can spot these people uh, quicker and better uh, in terms of making their recruitment. You, you look to see what Liverpool have done. Yeah, when they signed Andrew Andrew Robertson from Hull City, people went, 
what on earth are they doing there? He's now a fantastic fullback. Mm. Um, they they did a strategic analysis of their weaknesses uh, in, in 2017 and 2018. They identified that if they wanted to play the football that Jurgen Klopp wants to play, it has to be of a certain style of player. They then identified those metrics within players and they went out and they signed Allison and Van Dijk for huge fees but those were the two final pieces in the jigsaw, and they've they've been winning trophies on the back of that. Yeah, well, there's there's always, as you say, there's the other approach. You could take the Palace approach, which is go to a car boot sale and buy a broken player from Everton, see if that works. Hasn't, but there you go. Um, now, I've only just learned how to mute Twitter because you told me how to do it. <laughs> because uh, a couple of days ago, you took a big old stick and you stirred it around in the villa. It was a seemingly innocent tweet in which you mentioned in a tone that Villa fans seem to take exception to, the operating losses at Villa. Um, it caused a bit of fun. Why, tell us what it was you, you tweeted about and why it's caused, because it, it kicked off big time on on my timeline with Villa fans arguing against each other and against other clubs who were accusing them of basically circumventing and getting away with FFP rules, essentially. Yeah, well... One of the things which, which upsets me, and it, it takes a lot to upset I me. I know, I realise that, cause um, especially when I've tried to mention the El Gatwico and there's nothing, not a flicker, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> um, one of the things which really upsets me is is where clubs try to control the narrative. And, and the way that they will do that is that they won't publish their, their, their accounts. They will publish a press release where they then go and give you potted highlights. So Aston Villa published a press release. I think it was last Thursday or Friday. This is all legal, by the way. A- isn't absolutely, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nothing wrong with that at all. You yeah, know. They don't have to publish their accounts. Well, they, they have they to, to publish. They have to publish them within a certain period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they knew the accounts were due. Um, the, the the press release went out. I think it was on last Friday. They said they lost around about sixty million pounds, and there was also a big issue that they had to pay um, their their previous owner Randy Lerner uh, thirty million pounds on the back of being promoted. And the reason why they had to pay him was that uh, Doctor Tony G, who bought the club from uh, Randy Lerner, uh, he he welched. He he was supposed to. Uh, as part of his deal is that if uh, Aston Villa were promoted, uh, then Randy Lerner was entitled to an extra £30 million. Because Tony G didn't pay it, the club had to pay it. So there's all this. Right, it's okay. all a bit of a sob story. Yeah. Um, and you read that. It's OK, they've lost all this money. This is the reason why they've had to go and pay promotion bonuses. Perhaps things aren't as bad as they seemed. Then the results came out. I actually have the equivalent of the... Uh, remember Batman and, and when... Uh, when there was a, when there was a crime taking place, they they used the torch. Well, I've actually got the equivalent of that from Company's house. <laughs> so you look out of your window, and there's a big old signal, there's a big old accounting signal up in the sky. That's right. And you uh, go, hello. So, yeah. so, I, so I don the cape. Yeah. Um, so I, I I downloaded the account straight away. I went went through them, and there was there was quite a bit of stuff there which which hadn't been in the press release, which which sort of sort of. Yeah, you know, a bit like poking a poking a wasp's nest for me. Yeah. Um, so Villa had sold uh, Villa Park. We were aware of that, yeah. and, and that made significant profits um, on the back of that. Um, but they'd all so they sold it at their own valuation. Well, they, they, they sold it to themselves uh, for fifty six point seven million pounds. So they made thirty million pounds profit on that. And the other thing, which is a bit weird, which they kept very quiet about historically, was that uh, part of their training ground has been acquired by. Uh, HS2, yes. 
the, the new train line, um, and they made around about £20 million on that. So From if, a if compulsory you, purchase. That's right. Which is strange, because that's the sort of story that an, any decent local journalist would be all over, you'd imagine, wouldn't you, that? Yeah, it, 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 so for a story like that to come out of nowhere was an odd one, wasn't it? Well, I, th- I think the story had done the rounds, oh, but, had, okay. but, but the numbers behind it, oh, um, I, see. I think I the see. numbers okay. really surprised people. Um, and so on the back of that, I, I just I, I, I don't express opinions when I tweet. I, I just put out facts. I think that's the, the right way to do it. I, I work in education. I think it's important to be uh, to be as objective as you can be. Um, I can read the tone of voice in your tweets. Can you? I think other people can as well. So there's a certain there's a certain wry raised eyebrow sometimes that you manage to convey in, in the, the way you treat stuff. Okay, uh, I mean the, the the Lawrence Bassini one seemed to yes. provoke an, a, a reaction on that one. Um, but in in terms of analysis, I do think it's important to be objective. Yeah, of course. And uh, the Villa fans became. Some Villa fans became very defensive and other clubs uh, or fans of other clubs in the championship effectively saying, well, you, only, you, you effectively bought your way to promotion. Yeah. You know, paying £175 in wages for every £100 that comes through the door yeah, yeah. Is, uh, is, is effectively uh, buying your way to success. Um, and, of course, the irony um, in, the, in the championship from last season is that Aston Villa had the record losses and they were promoted right. and Rotherham United had the record record profits or yeah and they were relegated which which shows the 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 challenges of sporting success versus financial prudence also pretty much sums up the reason why we're doing this podcast so so the villa story is finished now there's no there will be no ffp comeback for them that's gone done dusted well the the, the latest story which i think came through the mail today was that the uh, premier league have looked at the price at which aston villa have sold themselves the stadium and uh, the premier league are happy with that and and that does seem a little bit strange because leicester also produced their accounts yesterday uh, and uh, the king power was valued at 43 million pounds now okay it's a wee bit smaller but it's much more modern than villa park um now, where this leaves Derby County with yeah. their eighty million pounds yeah. for Pride Park not is uh, that, that's not looking too good. Yeah, uh, just very briefly because I did flag it up at the start. West Brom fans in the same part of the world are also unhappy with their former owner. Can we have a quick? Okay, very quick potted history. Uh, their, their former owner Jeremy Peace, um, he borrowed money from uh, the football club. Uh, and he then used that to buy more shares in in West Brom. So he took his shareholding from 65% to 88%. On the back of that, then two years later, he sold his shareholding to a Chinese investor and made an 800% profit on the deal. So he made £200 million out of this. Um, and what's really stuck, stuck in the neck of the, uh, the, the remaining shareholders, who are all uh, West Brom fans, is that, They've not been able to sell their shares at this 800% price. And it also turns out that when Jeremy Peace sold uh, sold West Brom to this Chinese investor, he also transferred the loan. Um, so, that, so the Chinese investor now loans West Brom £4 million, pounds, or £3.7 million pounds is the amount of the loan. Um, and the, the, Chinese, the new Chinese owner is now saying, I can't put money into the club due to Chinese government regulations. Well, also the other shareholders didn't borrow money from the club to buy their shares either, which is, and you know, what's really dep- this. This shouldn't be the reason I'm most depressed about this, but the fact is that Jeremy Peace, for quite some time, was held up as a decent 
club owner was held up as one of the good guys. I met him. I did a thing with him for match today, and he was. I don't know why I expect people like him to have Victorian moustaches that they somehow twirl and a top hat that they mysterious and a cape. But I'm disappointed in him, that's all. But it's, again, it's perfectly standard business practice, isn't it? It's just when it's applied to football clubs, that's when we get even more across. Well, the, yes, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fan group called Shareholders for Albion um, and they, they are trying to get the club to come up with a, a statement or clarification okay. on all of this. But uh, it... You can you can understand their disappointment. Well, I, well as as of last week, I think we've got twenty seven stories that we're keeping an eye on. Yes. So we'll add this to the list. So West Brom will become story number twenty eight that we keep an eye on. And, and if you keep listening to us, you'll keep finding out the information you're not going to get elsewhere. Uh, the Price of Football is a dap dip production. If you have any questions for us, please send them to questions at priceoffootball.com. If you want to put your reviews where you put your good reviews, then feel free to stick your good reviews where you stick your good reviews. And we'll see you next time. The Price of Football. As the world's largest network of remote professionals, we're here to help. Upwork is giving $1 million in talent grants to projects that counter the ongoing impacts of COVID-19 by connecting existing teams with independent experts in tech, creative, and operations to help save lives, to support communities, and rebuild the economy. Go to upwork.com slash work together to learn more.